The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your word and for your willingness to give it to us that we can know you, know your mind, and know the path that we should walk and know how it is that you have worked to help us walk it. So we find in your word your commands and your promises and we say thank you and please, will you please open our eyes to see and to understand what you teach us this morning passage in front of us in some ways is pretty simple and in some ways pretty hard to do. And so I pray that you would help us to understand intellectually but also to, to understand in our hearts how to walk it out. So come and teach us and minister to us, we pray, Lord. Please build your church. Thank you. Amen. The events of the last year and a half or so have brought many new laws and rules and Mandates of the sort we're not really very used to here in America. Stuff's happened. And right or wrong, that's all been pretty challenging for us. Challenging for us to consider how it is we're supposed to interact with all that properly in our American context. To consider how we are to be subject to the government. Like we saw we are required to be, 1 Peter chapter 2. That's what we looked at last week. And it's Challenging, but as, as hard as that's been, the interface with government remains largely generic and impersonal. What I mean is that when the president or the Congress makes some new requirement, or even when it, on a more local level, the governor or county officials or your mayor makes some sort of a, of a mandate, we all know, of course, that they're not doing any of that with any particular focus on me or you. They don't know who we are. It's, it's all, it, it certainly impacts our lives. It affects how we live, but, but it's very impersonal. There's nothing direct. We may chafe at it, but it's kind of philosophical. There's no interpersonal conflict. But that's not the case with the kind of submission to authority we find in our passage for today. Where the authority over us does know us personally and is doing something to us directly specifically and perhaps painfully. This gets a little harder as we move into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. As we saw last week in verse 13, we're commanded to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And Peter began right away talking about government. It's first kind of big level. But now he moves on to another very common human institution, that of work. Verse 18 is directed at servants, saying, Be subject to your masters with all respect. Which right away may give some of us pause because we probably sense that this is going to touch on the issue of slavery. And that's important. And that's kind of a loaded issue for us, particularly in our American context, given our history. So, before we get into the passage itself, I need to make a few brief comments so that we can kind of read it and understand it well in its, with its kind of right parameters. Slavery isn't 
never has been, never will be, good. Ultimately, it's against God's plan, which a bunch of passages make clear. But on the other hand, as we think about slavery in the Bible, and think about it particularly in Peter's context in the Roman Empire, we have to acknowledge that it would be almost unrecognizable to those of us looking at it through modern American historical lenses. In the Roman Empire, slave, slavery was not race-based. Slaves worked at all levels of the economy and had a wide range of dress, a wide range of work, wide educational variants, and wide financial status even. A lot of variation. Slaves were field hands and medical doctors. Slaves were manual labor in households, and they were managers of business estates controlling all the money of the households. They were teachers in schools. They were skilled technicians and craftsmen, and, and on and on and on. And perhaps even more surprising for us today, many slaves were actually paid for their work and could look forward to the possibility of buying their own freedom if they might choose, but not everybody chose. It's really very different. And we have to keep all that in mind as we come to a passage like this. And so we shouldn't, shouldn't be shocked that slavery is, is addressed here in kind of a, an ordinary offhand way. It was everywhere, very widespread and different in some of these ways. And notice there's nothing said here to those who are masters of slaves, just like there's nothing said to the government in the previous passage. Because the assumption here is Peter's talking to us about how to live under authority, not how to be an authority, how to live under authority when it's over us, particularly if it's non-Christian. So he's addressing this context of work. And as we come to it now in America today, the workplace is the proper connection. It's, it's the equivalent in our world where people work for others submissive to their authority when they're on the clock and live in an economic environment. So with that, I'm going to read the passage and then I'm going to draw two observations that are about submitting to authority in the workplace, but in fact are really observations that was, we'll kind of see, they kind of like spread out and they can apply to any situation where we are very personally in contact with someone who's in authority over us and it's kind of hard to deal with. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. This is 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18 down through 25, the end of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2. So two observations. Here's the first, pretty simple. Christians respectfully submit to those over them at work. Christians respectfully submit to those over them at work. Verse 18, servants, employees, be subject. Same word we saw last week. The word comes from military complex, uh, context. It's, it's be subject or be submissive. It kind of means look around and figure out where and how to get properly lined up beneath and behind the one who is in charge of you. Be, sub, be subject. And that's going to involve certainly obeying commands and policies and procedures and assignments. It involves cooperating with reaching company goals, working properly and well while on the clock like the boss expects. Of course, like we saw last week, verse 13, it is subject for the Lord's sake, which still applies to this human institution, just like all of them. And that means, still here at work, that whatever we're doing is for the sake of the Lord and we can't ever sin for the sake of the Lord. So there's the one qualifier on what it looks like to be subject or to submit at work. We have to obey God rather than the boss if the boss is telling us to break God's law by commission or omission, by committing something God forbids or omitting something God requires. That's the one qualifier. And it's going to come up here again in a minute. But that qualifier does not let us off the hook if the boss is sinning against us, being mean or biased or vindictive or selfish or arrogant, if the boss is young and inexperienced and foolish. Be subject to those over you in the workplace. Even in those situations, even in situations where the boss is being himself unjust, here in verses 19 and 20. As long as we're not required to disobey God yourself, then the command is clear, be subject to those over you at work, and do it with an attitude of respect. That's not just about obeying the letter, but it's obeying it with a heart attitude that, that gives honor, that recognizes the position, but not just the humanity of the person, but the position of the person, recognizes I am on the org chart, I'm beneath you here. And I recognize that and respect that. You're the boss. With an attitude of respect, be subject to the good and gentle and also to the unjust, end of verse 18. So what does it look like? Well, it's probably not hard to imagine. We can probably imagine, but we don't have to because he actually gives us an example. 21, 2, 3, and following there, it says Jesus himself modeled something for us. This is what Jesus put in front of us, his life, that we are to walk in his steps. So in any situation involving a boss or any human institution, any government, whatever, 
there is something that's, that's really helpful here for us as we're facing any kind of trial, any kind of injustice, any kind of someone over you that is pushing you down. Jesus modeled for us. This is how you walk. Respectful submission looks like this. And when he was reviled, he did not revile. He committed no sin. 23, 22, 22. <laughs> he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He steered far away from sin. He, when treated poorly and unjustly, when lied about, he, he did not descend into the, the, the gossip pool. He didn't, he didn't respond back in some way that was, that was unjust himself. He did not deceive. He did not misrepresent himself. And we likewise, that's how we are to walk. And when reviled, to not revile in return, when suffering, not to threaten. Jesus was, and we sometimes are, insulted and cut down and berated. That is so uncomfortable and humiliating. And when someone does that to us, the instinctive response in us is to shoot back. Maybe to the person's face. If you're a strong person and you feel this one's kind of weak, but often to somebody else later over lunch. That's very ordinary and very expected to fire back, to retaliate, to put someone back in their place, or at least to talk like you will and to threaten. We're wounded and we lash out. But Jesus models for us a new way. A submissive spirit that turns the other cheek and endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's what Peter's calling us to. Be subject with an attitude of respect to those at work. Now, again, every workplace is different, and there may well be some sort of recourse available to, to you and wherever it is that you work when you're faced with something that you are, are called to obey, but you really don't think you should or you don't want to. Sometimes a private conversation. You go, you go into the, the, the boss's office, and you close the door, and you, and you lay out an alternative view and in private, sometimes that works, right? Sometimes that's helpful. Or maybe in your company there's, there's some way that you go to the next boss up or you go to the HR department or whatever it may be. Sometimes that makes a difference. Sometimes that's helpful. Whatever opportunity is provided for you for pushback, feel free to take it. But be careful to still take that opportunity submissively with an attitude of respect. When you go into the boss's office and you close the door, you don't tell him what is. You make clear, look, I, I, I respect your authority. I know you're trying to do what's right here. Have you considered? Maybe here's another way of looking at things. There, there are ways. We all, we all know how to do this. The, the important thing is that when our pride's been wounded, when we're put upon, it's hard to remember. Oh, yeah. That's how I need to conduct myself here in this situation. 
So pause right there and run through your work situations and your work relationships and that particular boss or that particular part of the management team. Just, just run it through your mind real quick. It's something off. I think we should probably look more at our attitudes than our behaviors because sometimes in a financial setting there, there's like some heavy incentive to, to say and do the right thing, but really what comes out later is what's really going on in our hearts. So, so check your attitude. Are you churning inside and angry and you just would love to put that person in his place? You don't, but you'd love to. Be subject with respect. To those who are over you at work, look at you as a model employee, one that they love having on the team. Regardless of the, whatever skills you bring to the table, the way you bring them makes them thankful. They, they love to manage you. They love having you there. Would your peers see something in you that is unusually patient and respectful? Maybe when they've seen you treated poorly or improperly, maybe when you're all being treated poorly and improperly, and everybody else is just really frustrated by the most recent decision made by X coming at you. Would they look at you and say, that's interesting. He's, he's being afflicted, either him personally or, or we're all being afflicted. He's, all being, he's being threatened, and what comes out of him is nothing like a curse. It's nothing vindictive. It's nothing retaliatory. It's, it's a remarkable patience and a submissiveness and it seems like he's got a hope that's attached to something else. I wonder how he does that. Where, where's her heart actually set? Seems like there's something else going on here. I wonder what the reason is for the hope in her. Does that characterize how you are at work? Maybe some repentance is in order. But on the other hand, Maybe it does characterize how you are at work because work is awesome. I mean, as I, as I kind of work through this passage here, I thought about different people in our congregation, different people I know from outside of our congregation and the work environments that they're in, and some of those environments are awesome. I mean, you've got a great boss, and that person's looking out for the team and, and is really thoughtful and competent and it's easy to submit to that person or those people and to follow their direction. That's, that's good. But what's going to happen next Gay Pride Month, next year, when the memo comes down requiring every employee to wear a little flag pin on the lapel or shirt to show solidarity with everybody in the company? And that's kind of good for business now these days, too. What's going to happen then? I think we need to think about this passage in that way because I've been pushing this in one direction that we have to talk about because it is important that always in our work environments, all employees, Christians included, kind of think through what's my attitude like? How am I at work? And are there negative things that I need to cut out? 
for the sake of my witness, for the sake of honoring the Lord. Are there negative things I need to cut out? We, all, we need to think about that. Yes. However, verse 20, middle of verse 20 talks about, but when you do good and suffer for it, when, when the memo comes down requiring you to wear the pin and you say, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. Because you can't. You've got to steer clear of sin and steer clear of the deceit of supporting something that's sin. Now, maybe there's some recourse where you can go talk in private to the management and maybe they'll let you take some other path. Maybe. But I think probably, probably, the direction we're moving is to try to remove those kinds of recourses on purpose so that you can't get out of it. And you have to say, no. When you do some sort of good like that, not good in the boss's eyes, good in the eyes of God, and you suffer for that and endure it, when some sort of affliction comes to you, you're passed over for a promotion or a raise, maybe you're let go. The call here is to face that submissively with an attitude of respect and not, I'll show them. I've got rights. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you do. And maybe the right thing is to take recourse and pursue those rights for the good of the whole environment. And maybe that is appropriate to be done submissively with respect, with an attitude that says, look, I still love you. I still care about you. You're still the boss. But I, I, I have to say, I, I have another authority that I serve. And so I'm going to have to say no. That can be done with an attitude of respect, an attitude of submission, serving God, not man, ultimately. I, I think that's the way that, we, that many of us need to think about this passage because we're, we're in great work environments and, and frankly, we, we don't have any problem submitting ourselves to and following along with the leads who are over us because we love them and they're great. But something's coming that might challenge that. And to be submissive and respectful while saying no in all the right ways, that may still bring you trouble. That's God's call on us. And that's hard. Harder really than just getting rid of any negative behaviors that you know are wrong anyway and should get rid of anyway. That's going to be hard for us to say no. And to get there, we're going to need more than just some command to be subject with respect. We are going to have to have eyes that are fixed on the promise of the gospel, which leads us to the second observation. I'm going to go to the second observation in a second, but I, I think that thinking through the, the work environment is so varied because of our American context and all the different ways that we do work these days. If you come out of that thinking... I want to be a model employee to those over me and a model employee to those next to me. That they may wonder, what's going on in me? Then you, then you kind of got it. 
And to be that, even when it's hard, is going to require the second point from us. How we can do this kind of submitting to authority in any setting, in fact. Here it is. The judgment of the true master is what makes submission to people possible. The judgment of the true master is what makes submission to people possible. God, the one who stands in authority over every human institution and over every human relationship and every situation and every boss, we must keep in mind the one who reigns everywhere who will call everything into account and everyone into account one day. He is the Lord. He is the true master, and he will judge. Peter continually brings us back to this point and anchors our submission here in the judgment of God. First, a judgment rendered for us. Verses 19 and 20, those two verses both begin and end with an assessment that the situation there he's talking about in the middle is a gracious thing, it says. Gracious thing before God, in the sight of God. This thing in the middle, when we make ourselves painfully subject to unjust authority, when we're faced with that and we respond like this, but we don't stand up and lash out, we submit like that, that's a gracious thing for us before God. What does he mean? Well, Peter is alluding to, you can look back into Luke chapter 6, where Jesus, in three different verses there, says very similar things to this, talking about a benefit to us, or literally a grace to us from God when we, emb when we embrace something unexpected. Luke 6, Jesus talking about that. Peter's picking up on the same idea here. Submission done for the Lord's sake can become a catalyst for God giving grace to us. Not something we earn. It's grace. We don't ever do anything that gets ourselves in a position where, okay, and now God owes me. No, it's always grace. But it's a catalyst. It's, it's a situation. We can trigger it, in other words. God often tells us things that we do that trigger his grace. For instance, he tells us to pray. And he answers prayer. Not because he is obligated to, but because he has said, I want you to pray. I'll meet you in grace if you pray. We can read his word. If we read his word, he meets us in grace. Again, not because he's obligated to. It's a grace all the way through. We can give generously to other people. There are many things we do that can trigger God responding to us with grace, and here's another, endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. God will see that and decide to render a judgment on the situation to act towards us, towards you, graciously. He will decide to credit to your account some blessing, some grace of some sort. Perhaps now, perhaps stored up in heaven, kept for you to one day experience. 
We don't know when or what, just that he will. That our light and momentary troubles, afflictions for us here now, like this one, are attaining for us an eternal weight of glory that outshines them. You will endure better if you remember this. So work on refreshing your memory. Work on taking your thoughts captive. The problem is that we find ourselves in situations where someone, whether it's a boss or it's someone anywhere, is personally, directly afflicting us. And what happens is we're tempted to lash out and our minds also run off to, woe is me, this is so terrible and too hard and too painful, I am lost. This one or these ones are taking from me something that I enjoy, something that I need. They're taking from me what I deserve. They are inflicting pain and sorrow upon me. Grab that and keep talking to yourself. This one is doing these things. They are inflicting pain and sorrow upon me and grace unmeasured upon me. They are inflicting pain and sorrow and grace. Because of this pain and sorrow, I am getting grace. A direct connection, just as direct as because I pray, I get grace. Because I endure this sorrow, I get grace. Not earned, given. But he's told you this so that you'll do it. Endure it. This is how God works. He reigns and he intends. We look at a situation and we say he reigns over this and he intends for this somehow to produce for me good. He has told me in 19 at the beginning and 20 at the end that this situation, as I sit under it and endure it, that it is grace. I don't see it. Nope. That's why he told you twice, so that you'll know. I don't know where it's, I don't know how it's going to be. That's okay. It's bracketed here with God's gracious judgment for you to call you back and to strengthen your weak knees, to enable you to endure in hope. God will judge for you graciously. We probably need to get a fair bit more belligerent with our own minds when we're in the middle of situations that are challenging for us. To do less of letting our minds run and more of grabbing them and saying, no, self, this is the truth. And this is good. He will judge for you. And God, the master of all, will certainly judge against the wicked. 21, 2, and 3, we see Jesus leaving us an example. We talked about this already. But notice the last critical piece of that example, end of verse 23. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is a critical point. Myself, I find this point actually more helpful than the previous point. This is 
helpful in all kinds of trials, in all kinds of situations where you are being treated wrongly. Jesus reviled, lied about, spit upon, falsely accused, wrongly beaten and humiliated, and then unjustly executed. All through all of that, he turned the other cheek, was silent like a lamb being led to slaughter. Why? How? This is, this is really important. Because this is what we need to grab hold of. This will help us too. This is really important. And the answer is not, well, he was God, so of course he could. Nope. Not what it says. If it was what it said, then, then there's no help for us here because we, that's kind of saying like, well, of course, of course you can dunk. I mean, you're, you're eight feet tall. I'm only four feet tall. I can't dunk. I mean, so of course you can. No, something that's impossible for you. you. You recognize it. You notice it, but you can't copy it. That's exactly what's not being said here. These are steps that we are to walk in. The last one right here, we can walk in this step. We can follow this model. We can set our hearts on him who judges justly. That's how Jesus did it. He continually, constantly took himself and put himself in the hands of the one who judges justly. Let's be clear about that. He, he did not do it by some supernatural means. He said, I put my, hand, my life in the hands of God. You sort it out. I'll, like a lamb, silent, walk in the slaughter. What? Yeah. Yes. He put himself in the hands of the Lord continually. He continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This, we need to sit here in this spot because we so often, almost something in us says like, no, don't do that. Because if you just put that off, you, you let that go and you walk on it, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be condoning the behavior. Everybody's going to look and think you're okay with it. Don't stand up and, and say no. It's not what Jesus did. He turned the other cheek and said, you judge. That's not condoning it. That's passing it on to someone else to settle. Now, there are times, as a brief aside, there are times when we should stand up, particularly when it's love for others, when we should stand up and say no to something and not let something happen. And different systems provide for recourse, yes. But most often, we're not in those spots. Most often, we're just ourselves personally afflicted and troubled, and we want to say, that's not right. I won't stand for that. And Jesus' model to us is, he turned the other cheek and said, I'm not condoning this. I'm actually putting it in the hands of someone else who will reckon with it, who will settle it, who will make it right, accurately, correctly, and justly. He judges for us, and he judges against all evil. 
and he gets it all right. Nobody gets away with anything. Everything is settled justly and rightly. It may be unjust for a time, but there's a double line drawn under everything in the end, and it balances. Perhaps Christ will atone for that sin that you're suffering under right now. Perhaps that one himself or herself will. One way or another, God judges justly. For us, against evil. And he also judged Christ himself. The final important piece to remember about God's judgment. Verse 24 Again, alluding to Isaiah 53, we get the doctrine of substitutionary atonement told to us here with a different application than usual. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, him substituting in place of us. He takes our sins on himself, is cursed for them on our behalf on the tree. Our sins are paid for by his death. Our wounds are then healed as our sin problem is dealt with. And how we usually think of that, that's all true. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's all true. And how we usually think of that is, my sins go onto him, they go onto the tree, he's cursed in my place, I am healed by his wounds, I am forgiven, my guilt is removed. And I'm counted as standing in righteousness in the presence of God, clean. That's all true. That's how we usually think of it. But Peter here is more concerned in this context to draw something different. Christ bore our sins, he says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you notice that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed. He's emphasizing not the removal of guilt, but the ability to lay off sin and walk. In other words, he's not talking about Romans 3 and 4, he's talking about Romans 6 and 7. If you know the book of Romans. Something in me, because of Christ, something in me is put to death and I'm set free to walk in righteousness. To no longer be held by sin's bondage, but to be healed of this, of this hole that sin had me. I'm now dead to sin and alive to righteousness. I have returned to my rightful master. I used to walk after the master of sin and I used to be controlled by my lusts and passions and desires. But because of Christ's the judgment on Christ, his death, set free and restored, brought back to a new master, returned to the one who is the overseer of your soul and has a new life for you. He judged Christ on the tree to return us to his rule, to heal us. The Messiah King endured this suffering for us to serve us like a servant that we might be healed 
and restored and made to walk in a different life. And as that happens, as we live, suffering, turning the other cheek, enduring suffering even when unjust, subjecting ourselves in hope of God's grace for us and his judgment against evil, as that happens, everybody looking says, there's something to this. There's something to this. These people are different. These people who follow this Jesus, these people live under really well. Everybody can live over really well. That's fun. Can you live under? And live under when it's hard and there's heat coming at you. In Christ you can. You've been healed. Because of Christ's death you can. You've been set free from sin. You can live in righteousness. Because of Christ you can follow. You've been returned. You actually have been restored to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Called to walk in him, you can. This commends the gospel to others and it's good for us. Which is why this is what he calls us to, to live under well remembering his judgment for us and against evil and ultimately on Christ. We're a freed people, able. And so step into it and do. Live submissively with all respect towards those who are in authority over us at work and everywhere. Let me pray. Father, there's a lot there. Would you help the right pieces to settle in the right minds? And in particular, Lord, I want to say thank you for the fact that you make this possible. That you remind us of how you see things and how you sort out things. And I pray you would press that into the minds of your people here. That you would cause us to look at your judgment thankful. Will you enable us to walk forward faithful to you in service to the world around us? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.